those of you who were here, many were missing a few weeks ago. That was a weekend of the basic ski trip. But uh, a few weeks ago in the Sunday message, we looked at the very bad news that there is a hell. It's a real place. And apart from Christ, we all deserve to spend eternity there, away from the presence of the Lord. We remembered that most of the time, good news is good because the bad news has somehow been changed or overcome. We, if we heard today, for example, that the war that Russia is waging against Ukraine, bad news, of course, is now over, that would be good news indeed, wouldn't it? Good news because the bad news somehow has been reversed. Today we're going to allow the Word of God to reverse this bad news that we talked about a couple weeks ago about the reality that there is a hell by reminding us of elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, gospel literally means good news. And just as the reality of hell and the fact that we deserve to spend forever there is the worst news ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to take upon himself the punishment that we so richly deserve, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, is the best news ever. Jim Grinnell has had a few real-life bear encounters. In fact, I, I think even once in the pulpit he told us about one of those real-life bear encounters. But he once told me that when he inevitably chokes to death on gummy bears, he hopes that people will say he was killed by bears and leave it at that. I always feel better when my doctor says something's normal for my age, but then I think, you know, someday dying will be normal for my age, too. You should try to treat each day as your last, because one day you will be right. We've had ample opportunity in the past few months to consider the reality of death here at TCF, having lost three of our beloved members. Many of you were at one or more of those memorial services did here. And if you were, you heard some of what we're going to rehearse again this morning. But as I mentioned a few weeks ago, when talking about the reality of hell, there are some truths of our faith that we must remember. And we cannot remember these truths too often. We can't repeat them too often. Because they're so incredibly important and they are central to our faith in Christ. There's a reason that we share the Lord's Supper every Sunday at TCF. And there aren't many passages of Scripture that include more reminders of some of these critical doctrines of our faith than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to linger in some of these this morning. The truth is that except when we have a lot of funerals like we have recently, we don't really talk much about death in any context, even a humorous context like gummy bears. And I think that's a mistake that we don't talk about death and the reality very often. You might tend to think that death is something that older people think about more. And of course, that's true, statistically. It's true that the older you get, the closer you are to death. That's just the reality. But it's something that more of us should think about, even those of us who are younger. Not so much because any of us could die at any time. Of course, that's also true. It doesn't matter if you're younger, you could die tomorrow. But because the truth about death is so central to the core of the gospel, 
And we're going to explore that reality this morning. So even the basic age youth and the young adults among us, I want to encourage you, don't tune out today, okay? Because this is for all of us. It's only been three years I preached on this theme from the pulpit, not counting funerals I've done. And I did so then, three years ago, because my wife and I at that point had experienced a lot of death in the previous 18 months. In April 2018, Barb's mom, who lived with us, passed into eternity. And then the following February, her dad went to be with his Savior. And later in 2019, my mother discovered that the Scriptures were true. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, which is far better. I said at my mother's graveside service that death is the most universal reality that seldom gets discussed. Everybody dies, or will die, but no one ever seems to talk about it. Now, death is seen all the time. You can watch the news just this week, right? You can see about all the death that's taking place, the destruction that's taking place in the Ukraine. Fictionally, on movies, on television, but also real death in the news stories and documentaries that we see if we follow those. There's even a website that has compiled a list of the actors who've died the most on film. Any guesses? Christopher Lee wins that dubious prize. He died 60 times in his 280 movies, including Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, Revenge of the Sith. The American Psychiatric Association reports that by age 18, a U.S. youth will have seen 16,000 murders and deaths on television and in movies. That's a lot in 18 years. I don't think that number even included video games. More than 3.3 million people died in the U.S. in 2021. But unless you experience it with someone close to you, and again, many of us have just recently, we don't think about it and we don't talk about it. But I propose that not thinking about it, not talking about it, isn't really a good thing. Why do we not talk about it? Have you ever thought about that? I came up with a list of some reasons, and of course, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a list of reasons that I think uh, will help us to begin to think about this. We don't think or talk about death because it's not real, or it doesn't seem real. It's fictional, right? Or because we're young and we haven't seen it up close very often, if at all. Or we don't think about death because we're young, and because of that, we think our death is decades away and we have time to think about it later. We don't think about death because we're afraid of it. We don't think about death maybe because we're not necessarily afraid of it, but because of the process, how we die. Nobody wants to die in long, slow, painful agony. It's like the one who said, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. I think we'd all kind of think that, right? We don't think or talk about death because we don't believe in an afterlife and there's no comfort in just ceasing to exist. Or we do believe in an afterlife, but we don't know where we're headed. That's rehearsing what we talked about a couple weeks ago, the reality of hell. And then finally, one of the reasons I thought that we don't talk about death is because of fear of the unknown, even for believers. We know some things from Scripture about what death brings, but we don't know everything about what death feels like, what it looks like. Unlike the world and our culture, the Bible talks a lot about death. 
And Jesus spoke of his own death. The Word of God gives us a perspective on death that we cannot find in the things of the world. Because of the Bible's many passages dealing with death, I think it illustrates the importance of remembering death as a reality. But more important, remembering the perspective that the Bible brings us. A few years ago, when I did the last message on this, I had read uh, a really good book by an author named Matt McCullough. He wrote a book called Remembering Death. Some of the thoughts that we're going to explore this morning are from this book. Well, he says in that book, the best way to enjoy your life is to get honest about your death. Let's start with this sobering truth. Anything you do or get in this world is already fading away. You're going to die. It's not if, it's when. And everybody you care about will die. Kind of a depressing thought when you think of it that way, but we're going to try to overcome that depressing thought this morning. Sometimes we live our lives as if this isn't true, but it is. Death makes a statement about who we are, and it tells us that we are not too important to die. We will die like those who've gone before us, and the world will keep on moving just as it always has. How many of us even know the names of your great-grandparents? Okay? Not all of us by a long shot, not even half of us. So think about that. Even if you do, how much do you know about them? My children will certainly remember me. My grandchildren may remember me, depending on how old they are when I die. And of course, there are always exceptions to this. But my great-grandchildren may never really know me. And my great-great-grandchildren probably won't even know my name let alone much about me, what was important to me, what I did in my life. And the further down the road we look, the less likely I am to be remembered. In a hundred years, I'll just be a name on a grave marker. The truth is that no one is indispensable. It's a sobering truth, and it's a hard thing to recognize, and maybe it's even a little bit scary. But here's where the rubber of this harsh reality meets the road of biblical truth. If we allow this truth to sink in, think about it. The truth of the gospel shines so much more brightly by comparison. The gospel reality is this. The bad news about death is so much worse than we can imagine. But the good news, and again, that's what the word gospel literally means, is so much better than we can begin to fully understand this side of eternity. That's because our faith in Christ as our Savior is a resurrection faith. There are many passages in Scripture that reinforce this, but again, perhaps the most complete exposition of this line of thinking was done by the Apostle Paul in the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. It's no accident that excerpts from chapter 15 are almost always read at funerals or at graveside committal services. I read some of this at Carl's graveside just a few weeks ago. I've had the privilege three times in 18 months, like I mentioned a few years back, and once 10 years ago when my dad died, of reading from this chapter at the graveside of both of my parents and both of Barb's parents. We could read the whole chapter this morning, and I encourage you to do that because there's a fascinating flow of it, but we're not going to read the whole chapter this morning. It's kind of a long chapter. But let me read just a few 
extended excerpts. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn with me and follow me along in whatever translation you have because this is incredibly important stuff. If we are to truly embrace the truth about death, but also see the corresponding truth about the resurrection, shining bright contrast in the bad news about death, we need to know these things. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 15 with verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So, my brothers and sisters, let me echo Paul in this message this morning. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, and James has preached to you, and Jim, and Jim, and let's go down the list of all the elders that have preached to you. This is foundational. What do we really believe? When we believe these things, Paul says we can stand. When we believe these things, it isn't just for comfort about the truth of what happens when we die, but it really and genuinely affects the way we live in the here and now. Paul writes that we should hold fast, hang on tight to this truth. When he writes that this truth is the truth by which we are being saved, one of the things he's telling us is about the process of becoming more Christ-like. So this isn't just about our ticket to heaven. That's part two. It's about confidence in his redemption. It's about what this means for our Christian life. It's about being changed. It's about being saved, as Paul writes, day by day, being molded and shaped into the image and likeness of Christ. That's how important it is. Paul says it's of first importance. That's pretty easy to figure out what he's talking about. This is high. This is the highest priority for us. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So because of this, He urges us to hold fast to this truth. So if you still have your Bibles open, let's jump down to verse 12 where Paul writes this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's a sobering thing, isn't it? We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, in other words, those who have already died in Christ, have perished. They're just gone. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Paul here is not just anticipating counter-arguments to his case here. He's being very honest about how critical, how vital this portion of Christian doctrine really is. If Christ has not been raised, he writes, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Think about the implications of what Paul is saying here. Here we are together this morning, hearing the word of God preached. We did it last week. We did it the week before and the week before. In fact, we've been doing it here as Tulsa Christian Fellowship for more than 52 years. Do the math. That's more than 2,700 sermons at TCF over a half century just on Sunday mornings. That's not counting Wednesday night uh, Bible study teachings or house church or Sunday night teachings or maybe other special meetings. And here's the Apostle Paul telling us that if there is no resurrection, if Jesus is dead and in a tomb somewhere that no one has ever found we have been wasting our time who likes to waste time no we don't have time to waste right we've all got way too much to do so why is it important i know that each of the elders puts in hours of prayer and study to prepare teaching and preaching i know that our children's church teachers put in hours to prepare paul says if there's no resurrection it's all in vain. It's empty. It's worthless. That's the literal translation of the word vain. Empty. A waste of time or useless or without foundation, as some different translations say. And here's perhaps the most challenging part of what Paul says. Let me read it again. If Christ has not been raised, Paul writes, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, those who have already died, have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. Futile, worthless, useless, without purpose. That's where we get the first part of this morning's sermon title, pity. No one wants to hear this about your life or the things you do, right? What a pitiful life you have. The things you're doing are pitiful. The way you spend your time is just pitiful. That's why Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're pitiful. More pitiful than anyone else. Because we've based our lives and our hopes on empty promises. Not only have I wasted my time preaching and teaching and preparing to preach, I've also wasted my time as an elder at TCF visiting hospitals. I waste my time doing weddings, doing funerals. I waste my time building relationships with so many of you, spending time with you, discussing our joys, discussing our challenges, dealing with our problems. I've wasted 16 Sunday nights every year for 28 years in Bible Bowl. And our children have wasted hours memorizing Scripture. James and I got pied last Sunday night for nothing. James, you're probably wondering how I'd fit this into a sermon. <laughs> I'm just pitiful, and so are you, James. 
So are all of us if Jesus hasn't been raised. And the worst part of it is not just my wasted, purposeless, useless life. When I die, I'm just gone. If you believe, we just cease to exist. Or worse yet, the devil wins, and I spend eternity with him and his minions. So if that's true, it doesn't really matter how I live or what I do for Christ. And it certainly doesn't matter if I resist sin. It doesn't matter if I obey Scripture. Paul writes a few verses later in verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we'll die. If there is no resurrection, what does it matter if I help the poor? What does it matter if I help the needy? Live for yourself. Doesn't matter. Or what does it matter if I remain faithful to my wife of 43 years? What does it matter if I comfort the sick or sacrificially pour my time and energy into someone's life? It doesn't matter. Or I put a referee's shirt and ball cap on 16 Sunday nights every year for more than a quarter century. What does it matter if I'm kind or compassionate or generous? You know what? If Jesus isn't raised, I might as well live like hell. I might as well cheat on my wife. I might as well be a real jerk. I might as well blow off Bible Bowl and never come to church. Because if there is no resurrection, if there's no heaven to look forward to either, and it's all meaningless. Might as well take up drinking and get really drunk pretty much every day because none of this matters anyway. How I live my life doesn't add up to anything. These are some of the things that are at stake with our resurrection faith. If it's not true, that is, if Jesus hasn't been raised, we're pitiful. Every one of you. All of us were pitiful. So thankfully, that would be a terrible way to end a sermon, wouldn't it? Thankfully, Paul doesn't end his letter there. That would be truly depressing. He's fully explored the bad news about sin and death. If you read Scripture, Paul explores that in many places. He's looked at an alternate reality. What if there is no resurrection? What does life and death look like in that alternate reality? And then in verse 20. Paul turns the tables again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Thanks be to God. If death tells us we're not too important to die, then the gospel, the good news, tells us we're so important that Jesus died for us, for you, for me. And not because death's message about us is wrong, it isn't. We are sinners. And Scripture tells us quite clearly that there's no one righteous and we all deserve eternal punishment and death. But in Christ, but in Christ, through our union with Him, we are righteous. We are children of God. And God will not let us die. He won't let us die any more than He left Jesus in the grave. Think about that. Jesus was the first one to be resurrected. Yes, of course, we know that Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. Scripture tells us about others who were raised too, but eventually all of these still died again. But our resurrection in Christ is forever, and we're next. Paul concludes this chapter with these words, 
starting in uh, verse 53 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your love is not in vain. So we talked about all the things that if Jesus hasn't been raised were in vain, and Paul's saying no. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul reveals that because of Jesus' resurrection, this perishable body, this body that is subject to dying with all the aches and pains that an old man has, this body will die. This body will get a replacement, and not just a replacement, but an upgrade. Bill 2.0. Just as Jesus has an immortal body, so will we. And here's where the tables are turned on the awful, horrible, bad news about sin and death. Because of our sin, we will die. But because of Jesus paying for our sin on the cross, and because of his resurrection, death does not have the final say. It's not the end. Death ultimately loses the battle. Maybe not today, because Carl, Art, and Joe... Barb's mom and dad, my parents, many of our loved ones are still in their graves. But death doesn't have the final victory. Death may think it wins every time we lose a loved one in Christ, but it doesn't win ultimately, which is why we see Paul quoting both Isaiah and Hosea when he writes here, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death does seem to win when someone dies in Christ, because they're gone from us, right? But it's an empty and temporary victory. Paul isn't entirely downplaying the sting of death. It's very real. He also writes in this chapter that death is the last enemy to be destroyed, okay? We live now in an era of the mop-up phase, where death still has a sting, and the sting hurts. We can be honest about that. That's why we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Death is not okay. It's appropriate. It's even spiritually and emotionally healthy to grieve. But when we grieve, we grieve with hope because death doesn't win in the end. The final chapter's been written, and my brothers and sisters, God wins. And God destroys death. And those of us who are in Christ live in resurrected bodies with Him forever. These kinds of thoughts are especially meaningful when we've recently suffered the loss of someone we love or are facing such a prospect soon. But why should we think about, why should we talk about death when we're young, when everybody around us is healthy and seemingly will live with us for a long time? It's so easy to get caught up in the quest for stuff in this life. But death steals everything from us in the end. You can't take it with you. I don't know that that's uh, in Scripture anywhere, but it's a truism. Nevertheless, you can't take it with you. 
and not just our stuff. Death has taken my mother from me, and I won't enjoy her presence again in this life. I feel cheated, robbed by death. Doris, I miss Carl too, as I know you do. And I miss Joe, and I miss Art. Those of us who've lost parents or spouses or siblings or just other people we've known and loved feel this sting, and we feel it deeply. We can be honest about that. But when death is not close, when we're not, it's, it's not just something that we recently experienced, Jesus' promises don't feel quite as real. Jesus doesn't offer more of what death will only steal from us in the end. He offers righteousness, adoption, God-honoring purpose, eternal life, things that taste sweet to us only when death is a regular companion. Until we recognize this, we can't really appreciate fully the power of the gospel, and we can't long for his appearing, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Only when we remember death, when we take time to think about it and ponder it in the light of Scripture, only when we realize that the bad news is so much more than we can imagine, are we able to see that the good news of the grace of the gospel is so much more amazing than we can imagine. The good news of the gospel shines brightly in sharp contrast to the bad news about death. It's like a bright light suddenly shining in a pitch dark room. If we want to live lives of purpose and meaning and joy, we have to look honestly at the problem, the reality of death. Because our purpose, meaning, and joy are brought about by our union with Jesus and what he has accomplished for us in his death and his resurrection. Our culture today is obsessed with happiness. Death is a challenge to that happiness because our culture doesn't have a good answer for this challenge. But our resurrection faith does have a very good answer for it. Death is the separation of good things that were never meant to be separated. It separates a person from family and friends. It separates the soul from the body and the body from the earth. Again, death is not okay. But by avoiding the subject, except during those times when we're forced to face it, we act as if the bad things about death are not true. And we minimize the incredible reality of Jesus' victory over death and all that means. That's why we're rehearsing this this morning. That's why we're thinking about these things together. If death is not a problem, then Jesus won't be much of a solution. The more deeply we feel death's sting, the more we'll be aware of the amazing good news and truth of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The more carefully we number our days, which is another way of saying the more we think about death, the more joyfully we'll hear that death's days are numbered too, and the more we allow ourselves to grieve the separations that death brings to our lives, the more fully we will long for the world in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. As we saw earlier, death tells us we're a lot less important than we think. The famous the powerful, the gifted, the brilliant, the wealthy, they all die. But the gospel tells us we're far more loved than we can ever imagine. We are not too important to die. 
But the gospel, seen in the light of what death means for us, tells us that we are important because we are loved. We are not loved because we are important. We remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. As by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul tells us here that Jesus has made our enemy, death, his enemy. Death isn't a battle we need to fight, my brothers and sisters. Jesus has fought the battle and he won. This is the foundational reason why Paul can state at the end of this chapter, therefore, in other words, because of all these things, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because of these things, our lives are not in vain. Because of the resurrection, and that's our faith. The foundation for our lives is shifting sand. If we trust in our work, our school, our friends, our money, our stuff, or even some of the good and godly things in our lives, like our relationships or even our family, we trust these things in vain. They can't bring happiness or joy unless we see them as God's good gifts to us. And even then, we can find happiness and joy in these things because we recognize that God has given to us, but even then, they're temporary joys. Just as Paul argued about Jesus, if he can't survive the threat of death, our faith in him is in vain too. So Jesus' words may inspire us, but if he's just an example for us to follow, just a nice guy in history, had a lot of cool things to say, a man of inspiring words, if that's the truth about Jesus, and he didn't die, and he wasn't resurrected for us, we're still in our sin, and death wins. We face death at that point. We face it on our own. But because of the resurrection, because death is not my problem to overcome, because of these things, my work matters. My relationships matter. What I do with my stuff matters. Today, in the here and now, it's not in vain. All these things have a purpose, and that purpose is directed toward his kingdom purposes. But Paul is very specific here. He says that our labor, quote, unquote, in the Lord, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So that's, I think, a question we need to ask ourselves. Can we truly say that our relationships are in the Lord? Is our work, is our school, is our use of money, of use of our stuff in the Lord? If so, if it's really in the Lord, it's not in vain. It has eternal meaning. If not, it's empty and useless because it will never survive the reality of death. This world can be an amazing and wonderful place. We can enjoy the beauty of creation. We can enjoy music. We can enjoy art and cultures. More than that, we can enjoy the people in our lives. We enjoy those people who are special to us, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our parents and grandparents, our brothers and sisters and friends and neighbor, and this church family. We can enjoy these things. However, it's the love and eventual loss of these good things, these, even these God-given good things in our lives, that gives death so much power over us. Did you think about that? The things we love are eventually taken away from us by decay and death. So death's power in this life is stronger than our love, and it can feel like 
it can feel like death wins. It's an ending that inevitably separates us from what we love so that in the end everyone loses everything. When we recognize this truth, maybe even when we embrace this truth, not just say, okay, that's, that's real, but we embrace it, we'll begin to see and live a deeper, fuller, more realistic joy in the promises of God in Christ. The promise of a world where there is no sin, a world where there is no death, where the things we love, especially the good things given by God, will never end. The world that Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, promised us. Isn't that so much better than anything the world can offer? Even all the good things the world can offer. Isn't that so much more hopeful than much of the world's philosophy that everything is random and purposeless, good and bad things that happen are just dumb luck? At some graveside services that I've performed, I've referenced this brief video I'm going to show as we prepare to close. And I want to show it again. You've seen it before. Some of you will remember. It's a pretty powerful video. But I want to use it again to show a clear and compelling contrast between what's become a prevalent worldview with an amazing biblical worldview that we're looking at today. I've shown it here before. It presents the same kind of contrast I'm hoping we're going to see between the bad news about death and the good news of the gospel. So imagine yourself at a graveside right now, and instead of reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the person doing the ceremony reads from a book by atheist Richard Dawkins. If the universe were just electrons and selfish genes, meaningless tragedies like the crashing of the bus are exactly what we should expect, along with equally meaningless good fortune. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Did you see the reaction of the grieving mother? She's thinking, that's the best you can do? At a moment like this, I'm grieving the loss of my son. That's the best you can do? Where's the comfort? Where's the hope? That's all you've got in my pain and grief? My brothers and sisters, we have a resurrection faith. There's precedent in Scripture even for praying that we'll remember death. I'm sure most of us have never prayed, Lord, help me to remember my death. But there's precedent in Scripture for the very purpose of living this life fully. We read in Psalm 90, verse 12, Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Now here's the Bill Sullivan paraphrase of this verse. Teach me, Lord, to remember death so I can live life in your wisdom. That's a good prayer to pray, my brothers and sisters. That's a good prayer to pray. At my graveside service, I don't know, maybe James, you'll do it with pie in your face. Who knows? I want everyone there to find comfort in words of victory. Remembering not a moment of our life in Christ is random and purposeless. When we are in Christ, because the resurrection 
and eternal life are just as real as hell. We don't need to be pitied. We don't need to be pitied. We can mock death. And we can have a party because we have so much to look forward to. Death is swallowed up in victory, Paul writes. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in other words, because of Jesus' victory over death, because our faith is a resurrection faith, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You don't leave us without words of encouragement and comfort. We thank You, Father, that because of the resurrection, we don't need to be pitied, but we can look forward to eternity with You. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and then his conquering sin and death in his resurrection, Father God. We are grateful for these truths. We pray, Heavenly Father, especially in this season when we've been dealing with so much death here in our fellowship, we pray, Heavenly Father, that these words would resonate in us day by day and moment by moment, and they would make a difference in how we live this life. They would make a difference in how we choose to serve you, Father God. They would make a difference in the faith that we have because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We thank you, Father, for these things. We commit them to you now in Jesus' name.